And then if you if you say, okay, that's nice. Now I've got this big monolith. Vardin will also allow you to, to scale out to being a microservice deployment quite comfortably since you're running a Spring Boot application and with Spring Boot you can just call other services. So yeah. you can start decomposing the initial monolithic thing into microservices where you have one service being the UI. And I think yeah, you pointed out uh, that there's already a micro, micro front-end deployment as well or demo for that on, on Vardin Labs. So you can even take it all the way and go micro frontends with Vardin mm. and not having to learn an entirely new technology like TypeScript or, or Angular or, or... You're listening to the Vardin Insider Podcast, a show aiming to uncover the processes, mental models, and tools that go into building mission-critical enterprise business applications. We interview business and technical stakeholders involved in the enterprise application development lifecycle and share the lessons learned from building business applications that run the global economy. In this episode, we have Philip Gerhard, who's a software developer at iPoint Systems, where he's involved in the enterprise software development for environment and social product compliance, process compliance, and sustainability like the EU REACH regulation, WEEE directive, automotive end-of-life vehicle, environmental health and safety, conflict minerals, and more. Philip and I discussed the developer experience with Vardin coming from a Java background when building enterprise business applications, how Vardin seamlessly works as a web front-end solution for microservices architecture, including developing micro front-ends, why Stack Overflow is often overrated and vendor-backed open source can help reduce time to market for enterprise business applications development teams, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Philip. So uh, before we dive into the developer experience with Vadin, why don't we start with a little bit about the full tech stack of your business application that you're working on? So yeah, sure. At, at iPoint, we were developing a, a platform for compliance, really. So we, we, we started out with the Conflict Minerals Directive, which is, comes from the USA, where companies have to report on the usage of conflict minerals across their supply chain. And we, we developed a platform to allow suppliers to do that and for, for OEMs to request the information. And it, it's run entirely on Vardin, so, and it's used by 50,000 customers across the world. So uh, it's, it's quite a large deployment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we entirely run in the cloud. So we are running on Azure in currently not yet on Kubernetes for everything, but most things are running in Kubernetes as microservices and on the stack side we're a java company and the stack is basically Vardin on the front end and then we have spring and spring boot on the service layer and yeah we use messaging to communicate between the different applications or standard rest and that good stuff yeah so how long has the application been in development as in like when did it start and the the initial part of it, so the, the Conflict Minerals part development started back in 2015 with mm-hmm. Vardin 5, but we moved to Vardin 7, uh, sorry, Vardin 6 very quickly. 
And then since then, we've added on more aspects to the platform. So in the beginning, it was just the conflict mineral side. Now some material specific things are coming on or just querying your supply chain for things like poverty or rather for human slavery and or other uh, CSR compliance, uh, compliance indicators. And we've added them on as time has gone on. So some things have come on in the last two years. Yeah, interesting. So started off as uh, with Vardin 5, Vardin 7. And so what are the different uh, Vardin versions uh, do your different application modules have right now? Yeah, we the, the, the old Conflict Minerals thing is still unfortunately running on, on 6. We're in the process of rolling that into our enterprise offering where we will then trim out some things to make it still available for free since the mm -hmm. public application is available for free. And that will then be in seven, but we will then migrate that to 14 using NPR mm. reasonably soon. And the rest of the platform is running seven with some applications, which we usually deploy on-premise at our customers running Varden 8. Mm -hmm. And then there are other applications which also feed into this platform, which run either React or Angular. Okay. So we really have quite a diverse landscape of Varden and other front-end frameworks being employed yeah. Within the same, we call it a suite of products. Mm -hmm. So from, from the outside, we try to sell one package mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and then it, the, the customer should, be, sh should not know what front-end technology exactly. they're dealing with at, at, a diff at a specific time. Yeah, wonderful. So that's interesting. You have uh, in 7, 8, and 14, and uh, we've had some breaking changes. We have to do that to keep up with the web. So let's dive into now the developer experience. Uh, and you can dissect, you know, into seven, eight, and fourteen things that are different. But let's start with the good, good stuff. Uh, you know, as a developer, when you are, so what is your background? Full stack development, Java, and yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I started off at iPoint about five years ago, and since then I've been working on all levels of the stack. Yeah. I, I'm also working as a UX engineer at iPoint, so I, I okay. have an affinity for user experience and usability okay. development. But there, I mostly focus on conceptual things and user research. Yeah. Okay. But when it comes to development, I, I work on all layers of the stack. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's start with you know the, the the audience you know the developers. Let's say they're Java Java developers. Software developers are not familiar with Vardin. How would you, as a developer uh, with experience having development enterprise business applications uh, with Vardin, would you, you know, would you share as the developer experience with Vardin? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the, the if you're coming in as a Java developer and you have this large enterprise application, maybe running JSP or maybe it doesn't really have a front end yet and you're, you're just trying to visualize things, I think Vardin is great to get a website up and running very quickly, especially if you're already using Spring. I haven't dabbled much in the whole J2EE side of things, but if you're, if you're running a Spring application and you come in and you say, look, I want to get this on the web, I think Vardin is a great fit since you can just take your existing beans, your existing model and put a Vardin front end on it and you've suddenly got a web application. And then if you if you say, okay, that's nice. Now I've got this big monolith. Vardin will also allow you to, to scale out to being a microservice deployment quite comfortably since you're running a Spring Boot application and with Spring Boot, you can just call other services. So yeah. you can start decomposing the initial monolithic thing into microservices where you have one service being the UI 
And I think yeah, you pointed out uh, that there's already a micro, micro front-end deployment as well, or demo for that on, on Varden Labs. So you can even take it all the way and go micro front-ends with Varden yeah. and not having to learn an entirely new technology like TypeScript or, or Angular or um, where you get into all sorts of issues or all sorts of new fields really with new build tools, new deployment models. If, if you're running in, in Spring, one thing I value quite highly with Spring is the whole ecosystem. If you start off with Spring and you've got the Spring Boot admin, you've got, so you've got monitoring covered, you've got a configuration server out of the box, you have service yeah. discovery. And if you then start introducing different technologies, such yeah. as an Nginx to proxy your Angular front end, mm -hmm. well, suddenly you don't have configuration, you don't have yeah. the service discovery, you, you start getting a heterogeneous landscape, which yes, is manageable, but it's mm -hmm. just very comfortable to stay within Spring because yeah. it's such a good ecosystem and offers solutions that tie in to all levels uh, yeah. of, of your tech stack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so as a developer, let's go a step later. I'm, I'm asking, so what? How does this help you in your day-to-day -day role? Well, it, it allows me to reuse the, the skills which I already have. So if I have a team of Java developers and I, I want to get them to be web developers, I don't need to retrain them. Essentially, it's it's the same developer experience as Varden as it was when you used uh, Swing or JavaFX. Mm -hmm. you, you can just code out your UI in, in, in Java. Yeah. And if you have a, a UX team or designers, they can still provide theming. Yeah. Uh, you can still create a component library and say, look, uh, here are your base components. So mm -hmm. before Varden started introducing this idea of a design system, we did this at iPoint already. We, we have quite an extensive component library. We have mm -hmm. a centralized theme and we, we reuse, we, we didn't go this route of creating abstractions on top of Varden components. We composed the Varden components to build our own and yeah, we, we offer this library to our developers and say, look, if you want to do this, use this, use this component from our library. Mm -hmm. um, and then it becomes very easy for a Java developer to build a high quality uh, web interface for an yeah. application. Okay, so, I mean, the reusable, reusing skills immediately says, you know, you don't have to train your existing team. You can reuse their domain knowledge and it's cost savings. And it sounds like developer productivity if you don't have to worry about a lot of you know, client-server communication stuff. Um, so what is inherently unique about Vaadin when it comes to building the front end? When you start out, you, you actually get quite a rich component library from Vaadin already. Some, some other frameworks, you're basically thrown into base, into plain HTML land where you have to start from scratch. Yeah. Uh, I think Lumo and Valo provide a good, good basis mm -hmm. uh, to get started. Um, yeah. And then you can customize quite efficiently. And as you alluded to just now with the, the whole client-server communication, mm. especially in, in pre-Vardin 10 versions, it was all, it's all handled by Vardin for you. You don't have to worry about how do you make sure you don't get cross-site scripting attacks, how mm. do you deal with uh, cross-origin resource sharing and all that good stuff where if you're not a web developer, you don't technically know that this is going on. Most people have no idea that when your browser is talk what's going on when your browser is talking to a server and what limitations are set on that. And the question is, should a developer have to care? Most of the time, the solutions to these questions are always the same. 
Yeah. Um, so if you can do this with a framework such as with the same idea as what Spring did, where they said, look, we will provide you the boilerplate, which is always the same anyway in Spring Boot. And I think Vardin does something similar for the front end where it says, look, we know how to communicate between your browser and the server. Yeah. So we'll just handle that for you and mm -hmm. we'll make sure it's secure and you can deal with focusing on your business things yeah. and producing high quality applications which solve the needs of your customers and not having to worry about how does a browser communicate with a server? How do I have to build this out again uh, mm -hmm. in every project? Mm -hmm. And so the way Angular and React you have to do is you have to write your own service layer, REST services to communicate between the browser and the server. Yeah, exactly. So in, in Angular, you would implement implement an, a REST layer for the client, which starting with Vardin 15, you can do in Vardin as well, where you're just building the, the client-side views with lit elements and TypeScript. But even there, Vardin takes a lot of work off your hands since you can define the API in Java and then Vardin takes care of generating the client on the front end, making sure it's up to date, generating the appropriate model classes and TypeScript based on your Java beans mm -hmm. and maps the types intelligently. And then you just import them and use it. And really it doesn't feel very different to having used the, the Java API just now you're doing it on the client and suddenly you've, you're in TypeScript, but there's no real experience difference in that sense. It feels very familiar. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I wonder if uh, we can dive into a little bit on the Microsoft, how you guys are you know, using the microservices side of thing on the architecture. Because the question that I often get is, yeah, well then, you know, yeah, it's, it's okay, but we are going, we are re-engineering our portfolio and we are, you know, now going microservices with, and I hear all the buzzwords, Kubernetes and Docker containers and clusters. All right, okay. So well, can you help us, you know, understand what does your architecture look like? And yeah, let's let's go from there. Yeah, so currently we, we have a large, we have different, in the platform, we have things called, we call apps. And we have this one portal application and essentially what it is, it, it manages your, your, your applications which you have and you can do user management. And then you navigate to an app, which is one instance of a, data, of a Vardin app server running. So mm -hmm. we don't have micro frontends right now, but mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the front end app server doesn't contain any data. Mm -hmm. It doesn't contain any, any information on and any backend logic in that sense. So just a static um, page? No, it's not a static page. It's a Vardin. It's a Vardin. Oh. It's a full Vardin oh, application. Yeah. Okay, so okay, it's okay. not a static page, but you yeah. don't have a database connection. Yeah. You don't have many things you would usually find in the backend. And then we, we use OAuth 2 to do the authentication. Mm -hmm. And then the Vardin front end server will reach out to the various backends to okay. gather its data it needs to display. We, we quite heavily use the model view presenter pattern. Mm -hmm. So when we look at our front ends, all we really see there is a model, a view, and a presenter. And then we have one more abstraction layer, which abstracts away the exact implementation of how we communicate to the backend. So some things we, we just wrap to say, look, uh, this could be done over REST, it could be done over messaging, or it could be a WebSocket connection. And we really don't want to deal with this in Vardin. We want to deal with this at the at the boundary to the back end mm -hmm. and also in that layer we do the transformation between the different data types mm -hmm. and then yeah the back end is just a standard microservice as you would expect it so it has the database and all that stuff 
so anything else i was just going to say we we've we've gone down this road of micro front ends a little bit where mm -hmm. we don't do it at runtime but we actually do it at compile time yeah. So, so some functionalities such as we offer this feature where you can manage customized templates for the emails you send as our customer to your customers, so to mm -hmm. your suppliers. Yeah. And this is actually a separate module which we've extracted from the applications that use it. Mm -hmm. And this module provides all the UI logic to uh, in, inside it. And it maintains its own data model. If if you look at the Onion architecture popularized by Victor Renta, mm -hmm. then we, we follow that approach. And then this module is being used by the front-end applications. And all they do pro is provide implementations of, of some interfaces to provide the data. And then this module will uh, provide implementations of a view component, a Varden view, which we then inject using dependency injection from Spring. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a micro front end at, at compile time, mm -hmm. where which is really really quite powerful for us. The we, we had situations before we did this where our product owner would come in and say, "Look, I need this feature here," and two weeks later he would come in and say, "I need this feature over there." Yeah. And the the first time around the user story was, "Okay, let's break this down and see what we have to do." The second time was, "Look at the previous commits, copy paste them into the other one." And that was the implementation. And we turned around and said, this is inefficient. This is silly. Yeah. Let's figure out a better way to do this and only to do it once. Yeah. Yeah. Micro front end has all that. Um, interesting. Here's a question for you. So let's say you're in my shoes and you are engaging with uh, architects or, you know, director of engineers and they, you know, they, they shoot you down saying, Hey, we are moving the microservices direction. That's why I've decided to, you know, go with react and, you know that all of their backend stuff is pure Java. How would you, what questions would you ask them to, you know, to get them curious about what, what more we have to offer before they totally, you know, make yeah. their own bias decision? Yeah, I think if you, if, if you contrast a little bit the approach between, let's stay with Angular for the moment and, and Vardem, mm -hmm. with Angular, you, your client has to know where all its services in the backend are. So you, you get this client-side application and then you reach out via your API gateway and you have to find out where everything is and connect to it. With Vardin, what you can do is you can say, look, we, we have this, basically it's a backend for frontends approach yeah. where your, your Vardin server is your backend for your Vardin frontend. And the Vardin frontend in this case is the thing running in the browser. Mm -hmm. And then the Vardin server, it can use service discovery and all those things to discover where everything else which it needs is running. Mm -hmm. If you're using Angular, then you you might need to build this out yourself. I'm not aware of any service discovery done on the client side. So either your service gateway needs to handle this, your API layer, or mm -hmm. your your client, yeah. or you have a backend for front end anyway. Mm -hmm. And if you have a backend for front end anyway, mm -hmm. then it really there's no difference between having a backend for front end where your front end is Angular and your backend is a Spring Boot application, yeah. or your front your backend for your front end is a Vardin um, yeah. Spring Boot application providing the UI. Everything, yeah. Um, so I, I don't see there being a huge difference. Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to what skills you have in your company, yeah. and if you're a Java shop, why are you forcibly retraining people into Angular when you could reuse their existing skill set in Vardin. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So 
let's uh, talk a little bit about the this the whole deployment because a lot of uh, legacy systems, you know, on-prem, these guys, there's a, there's a move to the cloud happening right now. Were you guys always born cloud native or? We've deployed our application cloud natively for, for since its inception, but mm. the rest of our applications, we also have quite large on-premise deployments where mm-hmm. people, where we still have this rich client product, which, which we also install, which is a traditional install it in your VMs and run it. Mm-hmm. So we, we have experience on both ends of the spectrum, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what has been your experience uh, deploying a Vardian application on, on Azure, I think that's what you guys use, right? Yeah, we, we use Kubernetes on Azure. So we we started off having the good old traditional VM classic services in Azure, and now we switched over to Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Ever since we started using Docker, things have become easier. Um, mm-hmm. When when we still deployed into Tomcat with the war, di- war, war archives, it was a bit of a pain. But since we've switched over to Java-based deployments with Spring Boot, it's been really painless. Mm-hmm. There is essentially no difference between deploying a Vardin microservice and a, or a microservice with Spring, which has Vardin in it, and one which doesn't. It's the same layout for the Docker file, and it deploys yeah. in the same way. And the the one area where we've had some issues is we we strive for zero downtime deployments. So when we update production, we don't schedule maintenance and say, look, we're going down now for half an hour. Okay. Uh, we do this on the fly and our users don't notice. <laughs> and to achieve that, we we use Redis to serialize the session. Mm-hmm. And doing that with Vardin is tricky. Okay. In order to do many of the weird and wonderful things that you can do in the state inside yeah, your Vardin cloud. application and yeah. to enable that great developer experience mm-hmm. uh, leads to a quite large session being there in the, in the server when actually running. Mm-hmm. And so it's not possible to efficiently serialize the Vardin session into a Redis. Mm-hmm. So we go with sticky sessions. Yeah. And I think that's also the official recommendation from Varden right now. Yeah. And yeah, we, we had to do some tweaks in, in our service gate where we use Zool right now from Netflix. So we have the special status which says, look, we want to shut down this node, yeah. but there are currently still sessions here. Mm-hmm. Please don't schedule any new ones and let us know when there are none left. And then we will shut down the uh, node and bring up the next one. Okay. Um, but that's really been the only big issue Mm-hmm. And that's not been a huge issue. Yeah. And aside from that, it's it's painless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's actually a good transition to my question. What are the trade-offs that developers have to deal with when going with Vardin? Um, developers themselves, I think one thing which I noticed during development itself, especially with the older Vardin version, so pre-Webpack days. If you, for example, have two separate projects, one of them is your widget set and the other one is your actual application. Mm -hmm. If you're changing your styling, you need to recompile your widget set and it takes time. That issue goes away basically with with 14 and and Upwork. As soon as you have Webpack, then that's that's no longer an issue. And one thing during deployment, which is a bit of a downside, is yes, you will need more resources to host your client logic or your client yeah, code because it's in the server uh, yeah yeah exactly with an nginx you can get away with like 128 megabytes uh, megabytes or something and it, it will handle just fine mm. <laughs> because it's basically just serving some files yeah or maybe you'll need to scale it out to 256 mb but 
with a mm -hmm. bot in front and you might be looking at 500 MB to a gigabyte of yeah. RAM yeah. running in the Docker container or more, depending mm -hmm. on how many concurrent users you're hitting. Mm -hmm. But if you're going back to what we talked about earlier, if you already have a backend for front-ends approach, yeah. you need to be careful to, to, to not lie to yourself basically saying, look, yes, my Nginx is tiny, but I have this huge backend for front-end yeah. Well, actually, to have a fair comparison, you need to combine the resource allocation of the two, and then you should compare it to Vardin. Yeah. Um, and then you might come out to be reasonably similar, mm -hmm. uh, depending on your scenario. And that's where, like, you know, in my last conversation with Leif, he said, for Google, it might be cheaper to just throw more developers. But for, you know, other teams, um, the cost of a server is way less than cost of hiring a front-end developer, you know. Definitely. And then... And that's that's the kind of sometimes I, I end up in this cyclical debate. But wait a minute, what's the cost of your you know the adding an extra cluster, and then what's the cost of a one you know Angular developer? And but again, nobody likes to know that they're wrong. <laughs> but but I think on that point, uh, Leif is quite right here. Um, one thing which we which which you find in at least in our company, is that we have a UX team which is heavily focused on the design side of things. Mm -hmm. So their background is interface design, not software development. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to get the high quality designs into software, yeah. and in, in a traditional shop, you would definitely need to hurry, hire a, a web developer to yeah. implement that into some sort of library. Mm -hmm. And with Vardin, you can use your Java developer. They can build the components using yeah. the components provided by Varden and yeah. do some styling. Yeah. And you save that whole developer. So we had this discussion internally where we said, do we need to hire a front-end developer right now? Mm -hmm. uh, because we're, we're introducing a new design system which will include a new library or new set of components. And we said, yeah. well, maybe for six weeks, but at the end of those six weeks, we really don't have a job for them because yeah. Uh, we need people to implement business logic and that's exactly. done in Java in our company. So yeah. let's just teach the people we already have the skills yeah. and required to do the styling. Yeah. Maybe it won't take six weeks to build out the component library. Maybe it will take six months. Yeah. But at the end of that, we don't have the situation where we have somebody sitting around twiddling their thumbs and we are going, yeah. well, wh what are we going to do with you? <laughs> Additional um, overhead, yeah. Uh, yeah and, and I, I mean, it's very, yeah, it's, it's a good point to say, look, rather maybe reuse the skill set you have instead yeah. of going with the on Vogue thing, which seems to be go Angular or React or Vue yeah. or try out your other flavor of the month. Yeah, um, yeah. JavaScript um, framework of the month. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's almost of the week by now. <laughs> and I think I forgot to add that Leif was also mentioning that Google's uh, you know, scale with the amount of concurrent users they have, a 5% cost savings in the server cost is way more than the salary of a developer. That's why they can do that. So for enterprises, you know, who are in the business of, you know, banking or logistics or manufacturing, they need to start questioning, you know, the the, the total cost of ownership and, like you said, overlapping both the back end and the front end resources, and, and then have a high level zoom out view to to make a yeah. better decision rather than going with what Gartner is saying. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and I think this is also a conversation which people often have around microservices themselves. If if we look around at conference talks and what's what, what the, the gurus of the microservice world are saying is 
no successful microservice project has started out as a microservice. You start out with a monolith and then you yeah. see if your business idea has value and if there's any point to this feature. Yeah. And then you start decomposing it. And mm -hmm. I think Vardin is a great fit here you, since you can easily spin up a small Vardin application. Exactly. Uh, yes, you start out with everything in one thing, but you have your UUI, you have your, your backend connections, Second. all there. Yeah. And then you go, hey, this is really cool. Let's start decomposing it. And then the first thing you do is you take out the database connection, for example, and you separate that out. And if you did that with Angular, then from the very beginning, you have to worry about things such as client-server communication with Vardin. Vardin takes care of that. And yeah. I also don't have to redefine my model twice. One thing I really hate is having to write out my bean two times. I have to do it sometimes on the front end and the back end. I'm just sitting here going, why? This is such a waste of time. Yeah. And sometimes, and if it's once in TypeScript and once in Java, it's it's just tedious. And if if it's a a small initial uh, a quick shot project, I can do it with Vardin all in Java, mm -hmm. and I can even go fine, I'll use my entity, which I store to my database in my presenter or in my Vardin view. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have to worry about DTOs and UI beans and all that stuff. I can just yeah. take my UI, my, my entity and display it in the table mm -hmm. and then build out from there. Yeah. So one of the questions that I get is uh, from developers, from managers, from architects. Uh, yeah, Stack Overflow, you know, we don't find any Vardin developers. The community is small, but for Angular and React, we always get answers. How would you tackle that response? Um, yes, you will find lots of information for Angular, but 99% of it is outdated. <laughs> so don't, don't kid yourself. With, with Angular, you have a huge amount of churn. And if you look at tutorials, if you're trying to find things which are up to date to Angular 9, which is the current version, you'll have a hard time since most of the things are written for Angular 6 to 8, I would say. And you even, even occasionally still find the old Angular JS article. Yeah. And with, with Vardin, the docs are great. Most of the time I find my answers there. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we shouldn't forget is it's just Java code. The, mm -hmm you don't need to know a huge amount of framework specific knowledge to be able to work with it. So I don't find myself going to the docs very often and needing to look something up even in the beginning since, well, how do I order things vertically? It's called a vertical layout. Yeah. Well, that's pretty intuitive and I can discover that with Maven, for example, or I can just go to the component library and then to find out what objects or what methods are available, I just use autocompletion and Exactly. I don't need these documentations all the time, this documentation all the time. Yeah. And that's far more efficient having a framework which you don't need to go to Stack Overflow for. Mm -hmm. That just works. <laughs> if you're going to Stack Overflow, you, you've run into the situation where you already have an error and yeah. you've reached the end of your knowledge with the documentation and the things you can deduce from the, the code in your IDE. And then you start reaching out. And mm -hmm. with Vardin, I often find myself not having to go that extra step since... I can figure things out from the docs or from what I see being yeah. the error or what's in the IDE and what's happening. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the maths, the, the developers I have found often um, fail or ignore to do is the opportunity cost because if they are spending a whole day waiting for a stack, someone at Stack Overflow to answer the question, that's eight hours of their hourly rate that the business is paying them for no action, you know, no work's done. Yeah. 
and 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 Vardin has the whole support model where you have a question that you didn't find in doc or you don't want to waste time navigating our website you can just ask the question hey how do you do this and you get a response back thing which you have access to right yeah 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 and there's lots of lots of tutorials uh, available so if mm-hmm. if you're asking yourself how do i uh, add a login form using spring there is a Vardin specific tutorial provided by Vardin which does exactly that and it's kept up to date to the current Vardin version yeah. Um, so you don't actually need to go to Stack Overflow. You can just go directly to the source and it mm-hmm. works. And you have this GitHub project, which you can just use, which yeah. is great. Yeah. yeah. So now that Vardin 14 uh, LTS long-term support version is out, uh, our recommendation is to pick that because you can, enterprise systems, you know, teams, companies build that for the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, right? It's not like startups, it's, you know, start and go. So what do you see as a developer when you have an option, and you're a Java guy, but you know some, you know HTML, CSS, and you're hearing all this craze about React and Angular, and and this, you haven't heard of this thing called Vardin 14. When you are tasked with building an enterprise system that will live for the next 10, 15 years without much disruption, you're an architect. What is something that you think is kind of missing from Vardin's marketing, but that is really valuable? when it comes to building this long shelf life enterprise systems? Yeah, I think it's it's alluded to sometimes and it's even mentioned in this comparison which Vardin brought out recently uh, between Angular, React and Vardin. One thing I value quite highly is the extremely long LTS support. Having a five-year LTS version is rare and if you are willing to become an enterprise customer with Vardin, you can get an additional 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're looking at 15 years of LTS support yeah. for one version. And yeah. if if your startup isn't successful within 15 years, then I think it's probably failed. Yeah. And after 15 years, you can go in and say, okay, we'll upgrade our framework once. Yeah. And then you've got another 15 years. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you're 30 years old and either your company's, or you've been in the business for 30 years and either your company's been sold or you're hugely successful yeah. uh, or you're about to retire. So so really you you have this, you're avoiding this churn where, especially as your company grows, you, you need to have lots of conversations with the other teams. If you're, for example, developing Angular in a monorepo, okay, let's go to the next Angular version. Yeah, but that means we have to go as well. Are all our dependencies up to date? When shall we do the switch? And all these questions you have to ask, and you have to do this yearly. Mm-hmm. And with Vardin, you can say, okay, we can just develop our front end, and our front end will not have security flaws. And it's it's its own microservice. So on the back end, we can still benefit from the new features. We can still develop something in Python, whatever we want to do, yeah. uh, since it's separated. And you, you're just saving this whole communication effort to be able to to go on. And we recently partnered with a company in Hamburg, or recently, I should say, two years ago. So it's been a while. And they're traditionally a C sharp shop, so mm-hmm. they don't have any Java background and they're not going to learn Java now. Mm. But with Vardin, we can, especially with Vardin 15, so not 14, but 15, but even with with previous versions of Vardin, I've done this all the way back to Vardin 7, we can reuse the Angular web components in Vardin. So Mm -hmm. if we want to share some some functionality or we want to share some UI components with them, that's Mm -hmm. perfectly possible. That's not going to stop you in Vardin. Yeah. So I often hear this, yes, but we can't share code between uh, client-side frameworks and Vardin, and that's not true. You can do this with all versions of Vardin that are currently 
uh, available in the wild. Yeah. Yes, granted, with Vardin 7, it's slightly more painful than with Vardin yeah. 15. Yeah. But it works. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you're on 7 like us, then you should really be going to 14 with some steady speed, yeah. uh, which we're in the process of doing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think, could you talk a little bit about how uh, are you guys using multi-platform runtime tool to do the, to run the VARDIN 7 and the 14 together at the yeah. same time? Yeah, we, we, we had the, we had the migration assessment with, with Ben. Um, mm -hmm. And we, what, what really came out is we, we have two, there's two options really. We can go the big bang approach or we, we can go the phased approach. And for one of our applications, we're looking at around half a million lines of code. Yeah. And we're not going to do that big bang. It's just too large. Yeah. And, and we can't shut down the company for six months and say, look, <laughs> let's, let's talk again in 2021, especially in the current COVID-19 situation. Yeah. We, we need to make sure we continuously bring out new stuff. So we, we're going down the, the NPR <laughs> route where we'll be wrapping, we'll, we'll create the shell of our application in in Varden 14 and then migrate the individual menu items basically. So we have the main menu and then we'll wrap the content of the main menu icon, uh, items, so the navigation result basically, mm -hmm. and we'll wrap that in NPR and then slowly migrate as time goes on. Yeah. One thing that will take some time is, is the good old filter table. Uh, for, for those listeners that have developed Varden 7, they might remember that. Yeah. The, the there is no very good replacement right now yeah and we use filter table a lot yeah <laughs> so that that will probably be the, one of the last things to go mm. um, one thing that came out in the migration assessment which i i alluded to earlier was the fact that we haven't created an additional abstraction on top of Varden, mm -hmm. and i think that's going to help us quite a bit with with the migration effort so uh, at Vardin Insights in, in Munich, I heard from other companies that said, look, we basically rated a framework on top of Vardin where our developers, they don't use the Vardin text field, but they use the my XYZ text field, which just contains a Vardin text field, uh, mm -hmm. text field in it. Yeah. And we didn't go down that route. And I think that will make things easier since we don't have to migrate our framework. Exactly. We just have to migrate Varden and not create this additional layer yeah. uh, again. Mm -hmm. um, but it does, at the other end of the day, expose us directly to any breaking changes that are done in Varden. We can't buffer those. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. But I think it's it's easier to just to, especially with MPR, just to migrate Varden step by mm -hmm. step than to rewrite your whole abstraction layer yeah. um, again. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the business level, I think um, often business users or business uh, stakeholders don't get to, to see the total cost of ownership of building an in-house framework on top of anything because it doesn't add any business value. It's just undifferentiated heavy lifting. And, and developers would love to build that, but then who will maintain that when the developer is gone? And, and all sorts of things versus, well, then our bread and butter is framework. We are a framework company and you know we live by that. So... Uh, and I learned through life that we have so much responsibility because uh, we can break you know, hundreds of thousands of applications around the world. So we cannot be as hasty and wake up in the morning like a developer said, oh, by the way, I just, you know, push some updates in production. And life is like, oh, I wish I could do that too, but I cannot. <laughs> As a framework vendor, it's too much, a lot of responsibilities on our shoulders that I've become recently aware of. Uh, so, yeah. Maybe on that point, I think Varden has been very diligent with with that responsibility. We 
if we take out the jump from eight to 10, it's been quite smooth, mm -hmm. smooth sailing between the versions. Mm -hmm. And even with eight to 10, there's, there's the MPR tool, which is, makes it so much better than having, when I look at the other uh, huge jumps, like you had from AngularJS to Angular, where you basically had to rewrite everything. Yeah. And some people were like, well, I might as well just go to Vue because it's less rework. And if I now look at, I've, I've been developing this Lighthouse project with, with you guys, mm -hmm. and the jump from Vardin 15 to Vardin 16 has been so painless yeah. that I'm cautiously playing with the idea of saying, well, maybe it's viable to not go LTS at this time and uh, just go with the release cycle since yeah. the, the amount of changes that are actually breaking are not huge. And while I, I enjoy 14 with 15, I really do like lit element. Yeah. Uh, that's heavily grown on me, that, that client-side <laughs> development uh, yeah. with, I must say, with the uh, support provided by Vardin to do the client-server communication. Yeah. So if I yeah, it's it's been quite a smooth transition from fifteen to sixteen. And if it keeps on going like that, then mm. I think some companies, especially for smaller products, and if we're talking about micro front ends again, yeah. then that might actually become an option to say, look, our maybe less crucial things, well keep them on the on the regular cycle, not on the LTS versions, yeah. just to see where things break, to get experience, and then we can move our big chunks to the mm -hmm. LTS versions uh, incrementally. Yeah, something of low business risk, we can use the short-term releases and get an idea of what might break and then make a decision yeah. for the high business value uh, application. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 So before we segue into Wadden 15, one of the questions that often comes is uh, scalability. People say, oh, you're writing your UI logic on the server, you know, server has limitations. I would have to add more you know, horizontal scale it, which is still cheaper than hiring a front-end developer and doing things on client side. But what, what's your what's your concurrent user, maximum concurrent user for your application, for your systems? A couple of thousands, mm -hmm. but that really depends on on the what's what's happening right now. So a, most of our customers will will start out in campaigns, where uh, a customer will start querying its its supplier base say in November, they will send out a request to 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. And then you will see a huge spike in current users yeah. when those requests come in and people start working on them and then it peters off again. But then the next OEM will come in and say, look, now is my time to, to request things. Yeah. So we're not, we're not a YouTube where you have millions of yeah. people every yeah. second, but who is? Uh, we had to find any, uh, when it comes to enterprise business applications, that's the challenge. Developers think they're building the next Facebook, YouTube, or Google, but the reality is, you know, you'll have a hundred folks who will be needing it and, and, and solving million dollar problems. But that's the, that's the challenge. And, and, and we still have uh, customers who banks who have uh, applications, you know, running 200 K users. So yeah, if, uh, if, if you're, if you're in that sort of scale, you a have the finances to do it. Yeah. And exactly. if you're if you've got two hundred thousand concurrent users, then maybe the time has come to think about doing something different. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. It's yeah. it's I think with software developers, I often see the spirit of I have to start developing like Google from day one, mm -hmm. or I have to do it like eBay from day one. If if we look back at the history of eBay and see how their architecture was ten years ago mm -hmm. when they were a small shop, well that wouldn't sustain their current business. Yeah. And most people would go, 
that's not very efficient mm-hmm. and that's not a very good architecture but hey it solved the problem and at the end back of the then, day yeah. back then it solved the problem and at the end of the day as software <coughs> developers we need Probably to make sure we're actually solving a problem and not yeah. doing it just for the hell of it yeah yeah uh, as you said earlier if you give the soft, a software developer the opportunity to develop a framework, they will develop the framework because yeah. it's fun. I admit it, it is fun, yeah. but it doesn't add any value. Um, exactly. and, and starting out planning for millions of concurrent users when your company has zero customers, I would prefer to get a customer, at least one, who pays my bills, then plan for millions and get zero because I'm not going to get my project off the ground because it's so complex. Yeah, and it's uh, there's a lot of biases in 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 effect there because people wanna nobody got fired for going with you know microservices or React or this, and and developers like leading us technology and and that's the that's an interesting observation I've had that Google and Facebook are solving. Google and Facebook level problems. Your company, you guys are 200 employees and you have, you're a totally different domain and replicating that does not make sense to me. But again, uh, that, that's a ongoing conversation. Why don't we spend uh, in a next, uh, let's talk about Wild in 15 and uh, how is it different? And I'm surprised to hear, I'm actually excited to hear that your migration from 15 to 16 was really smooth. So we'll, let's talk about that too. But what, what are you doing with 15 and yeah. So back when, when 15 was still in, in beta stage or release candidate stage, I was approached by, by, by our customer manager. If, if we want to do a Lighthouse project and said, sure, fine. And we, since we have this distributed platform, we need to figure out where specific business transactions are. So we use messaging to communicate. And since the applications participating in the platform are dynamic, when you send out a message to a company, you don't actually know where this company is. Mm-hmm. Is it somebody who's got an on-premise installation? Is this somebody who's a cloud customer? Is this somebody who's not even on the platform at all? Yeah. So we implemented some routing there to to figure out, okay, where, where are things? And maybe to send out an invitation for somebody to come register on the platform. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that gets stuck. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been known to happen that this this message ends up being stuck somewhere, and then support needs to come in and figure out where it is so they can uh, fix it and resend it. And that can get quite complex to find out where exactly this is, mm-hmm. uh, especially when we have these these on-premise installations coming in. Yeah. And I said I I would like to build a monitoring tool where you can see where are the where's the message currently where has it been and to be able to track it and also to see what kind of volume are we getting between different applications Mm -hmm. so is most of our traffic happening from one customer to the other customer or is this mostly cloud people talking to each other Mm -hmm. uh, just to get some visibility into the system Um, and i i ended up building that with with varden 15 and I also wanted to see how I can integrate existing NPM packages. So for charting, I didn't want to use Vardin charts yeah. since they don't have a network graph and a Senki mm-hmm. diagram and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I ended up using chart.js, mm-hmm. uh, which is built on top of D3. Yeah. And I just wanted to see what that integration was going to be like. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the, basically the, the, the driver from our end, just to see, okay, can we? what's it like to use an existing NPM package in Vardin? and that that developer experience how was it 
That's been really good. So I initially, I discussed this with, with, with one of your guys as well. I said, well, there are some things which could be smoother, especially when it comes to the initial setup, but those are things which are easily fixed. Mm. And then it's very similar to working in a React project or an Angular project, yeah. where including Jar.js, it's, it's client-side code yeah. with the additional benefit of you don't have to worry about creating the beans which communicate from your front end to your back end. Mm -hmm. You get type safety built in, which is very nice. I think one thing you talked about, uh, total cost of ownership, something people often forget is the amount of bugs that can be prevented with typing and the amount of time you can save bug hunting due to typing. Yeah. The if, if we look at the front end space in the last, I would say three years, TypeScript has exploded into the JavaScript yeah. world. Yeah. And it's very funny for me to listen to some other podcasts where people going, you know, it's really great with TypeScript. I get intelligent IDE support and I go, I know I've had this in Java for, for 20 ever. years. Ever, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's been there the whole time. You've just been saying, yeah, we don't want types. And yes, I know TypeScript and Java are, are two different things and yeah. they, they behave differently, but typing is, is great. And I think Java has come a long way as well here. Yeah. Type safety. Um, and, and that's where like, I mean, the cost of debugging, you know, in JavaScript, it, it's, it's enormous. And, and, yeah, as developers, you don't have to suffer. <laughs> There's a better option. No, no, there is a better option, yeah. And, and oftentimes it is just using types. And yeah, when it then came up to time to upgrade from 15 to 16, I actually went to 16 RC1, so not, not a released version. And the upgrade was bump the Varnin version and recompile. Um, mm. That was it. <laughs> and nothing broke. Interesting. Um, What's the process like to upgrade? Is it just updating the dependencies on the POM file? Yeah, same thing. I, I I went into my pom file and I have one property which manages the Varden version for me, yeah. and I upgraded one line. I ran my Maven build, um, yeah. and started my application, and I was using sixteen. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so that 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 that's one thing why I said earlier. Well, I'm cautiously optimistic that it might be possible to develop some low risk applications mm -hmm. off the LTS train and on the latest train. Yeah because it's been so painless. Yes, mm -hmm. I know there is no guarantee it will be this painless all the time. Yeah. But the the effort, if it's less than a day, yeah. is less than oftentimes with other frameworks. Yeah. And I mean, one, one uh, community announcement for everyone listening, right? Well, in, in the Lighthouse project is, well, if you want to try out uh, while in 15 and write your you know UL logic on the client side on TypeScript, we are you know collaborating and so that you get access to our R&D team members and you know are able to share your developer experience and we will also accommodate your any custom use cases that you guys have. So just an announcement. What about so since it sounds like what while in the client side development model, it's kind of sounds similar to React and Angular. And one of the advantages of Vaadin has is you don't have to worry about creating your Java beans for the beans for the client server interaction. Vaadin automates that for you. Are there anything else uh, that is inherently unique to Vaadin 15 and onward that currently is a additional work or you know ends up being a cost when you go the other library route? Yeah, uh, as has been done with with the previous Vaadin versions, the the communication layer is handled for you as well again. So Vaadin Connect as it's called, is is doing this whole communication from your browser to your backend for you, making sure that it's secure. 
and with with angular yes there is lots of support and you you don't need to you you don't need to go a huge way to do it properly mm-hmm. but you still need to go into the docs and read it and mm-hmm. we we talked about you we we mentioned this earlier where we said look um sitting on stack overflow or reading documentation for eight hours is eight hours you're not developing business logic and yeah. creating value and while it may not be huge it does add up it's mm-hmm. just the, the little things where you spend an extra half an hour yeah. um or an extra hour here or another hour there because yeah. you're in, inherently if you're not experienced with angular you will come onto these things not in one big big moment but you'll you'll need them incrementally yeah. So the first time will be when you make your first post and then maybe you'll have a security audit and then you will have four other ones. Then you mm. might run Google Lighthouse and see your performance is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and at each of those stages, you will need to come in and, and research what to do. Mm. And since you have this framework doing these things for you, you will have less of these moments, mm. um, which saves you time. And I think that's one thing we as software developers have to be very conscientious, conscientious of is our time is expensive, especially yeah. in the Western world. We are not cheap. Mm-hmm. So we really need to make sure that we're delivering value as much as possible mm-hmm. at all times and not sitting there reading documentation or stack overflow, <laughs> even if it's fun. Here's a, here's a question that I have curious question. So in a, during the PI planning uh, as, as a developer, do, do the developers get, the message that we are here to create business value and unless, you know, we are solving a business problem. Because when I see a developer spending time doing unproductive, undifferentiated heavy lifting, which does not tie to their core domain, the, the vertical they represent, that's what I'm questioning. Are developers uh, communicated well enough that where they deliver the most business value or, or is it uh, something different? I think that's depends heavily on the culture inside the company mm-hmm. at, at my company we we do focus on that quite a bit where our po will come in and say look this is what we're trying to achieve and this is why what why this is important for our customers but one thing i think it's just human nature what happens is you're sitting in front of your problem and you say well this could be could be elegant mm-hmm. and then you go well i like building elegant solutions mm-hmm. so you build this elegant solution and you spend an extra three hours on it. Yeah. And the question is, well, nobody's used this feature. Maybe nobody will click this button ever. Why did you build an elegant solution to make sure that this particular implementation is perfect? I think that's one thing where we as an industry have to make sure we're, we're more data-driven, where we, we actually monitor how often do people interact with this specific feature and how long does it take? Mm. And if we find out that this button, which takes maybe half a second to do something is clicked once in two years, Yeah. then probably we shouldn't have developed this feature granted. That's true. But at the same time, there is no point optimizing it. Yeah. And when people start clicking it and hammering it every day and it's bringing down our servers, that's when we optimize. Mm-hmm. And that might not be the fun thing, the, the, the thing where as a craftsman, and I think software developers are craftsmen in a sense, mm-hmm it's slightly disappointing to build a, a bodged solution or to, to hack something together. But at the end of the day, the first thing we need to do is make sure it works and then we can beautify later on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's sometimes gets lost in, in the thicker things. 
Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, do you, what what sort of tooling do you guys use to track the data of uh, what's happening on the screen? We, we've integrated Google Google Tag Manager, mm -hmm. so basically we then use the Google services for that. Mm -hmm. But we're also using Jaeger, so distributed tracing. Uh, Spring provides the Sleuth library, where mm -hmm. which you can then feed into Jaeger to do some tracing some using the open tracing standard where you can do some distributed tracing where we're not where we want to be yet on that end but but we're building that out and also doing it then instead of using jaeger we also want to use app insights from microsoft mm -hmm. which also provide quite a lot of tools out of the box for things running in azure yeah what about testing how are you guys doing testing Currently, we mostly test behind the behind the UI layer. Mm -hmm. So since we're using MVP quite heavily, we will test from the presenters downwards. We don't actually test, is Varden going to display this button? But mm -hmm. we will call the presenter and then see if the correct methods in the view are being triggered mm -hmm. because we don't have lots of UI logic uh, in our okay. components. Okay. And if I tell Varden put this button inside this layout, I can be reasonably certain it's going to happen. <laughs> and I don't need to, you could test it, yes, yeah. but we haven't had the huge value to do that yet. So we, we have a huge amount of test coverage on the logic, on the logic side, side, but it yeah. doesn't actually test Varden extensively. Mm -hmm. We've been looking at doing some end-to-end -end tests where we then also hop from different applications. So you would log in and the login is one microservice. Yeah. Uh, then the OAuth redirects you to where you want to go. Mm -hmm. And then you go into your business application and do that whole flow. Mm -hmm. And we would be doing that with Selenium. Mm -hmm. But we haven't gone down that road extensively yet. We're, we're, built, we're in the process of, of developing that further. Okay. And one thing that people often say, Varden generates these strange HTML layouts and you can't test that efficiently. I would say that's not true. Because one thing you can definitely do, you can set your IDs manually. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, all that Varden does is insert HTML tags and they're not magic. Especially if you look at the new Varden versions, if I look at my Java code, it says vertical layout, horizontal layout, horizontal layout. Yeah. And inside the horizontal layout, I'll have a button. If I then go to my HTML, I'll have a Varden vertical layout, a Varden horizontal layout, layout, and I'll have a button. Yeah. So. I don't see the huge disconnect here where people are saying, if you are having a server-side framework, that might be true for other ones. They mm -hmm. generate uh, weird and ugly HTML. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that's actually very fair since everything that Vardin does these days is a web component. Yep. And then your, your HTML basically looks like your UI structure in Java and mm -hmm. you can quite easily compare back and forth, yeah. which makes many things easier. It makes the testing easier, uh, mm -hmm. but it also makes things like styling easier since if you're, you, you can quite easily, easily reason about your HTML page based on your Java. Mm -hmm. And if you then look at your HTML and you're trying to figure out, okay, I want this specific button in my component to have a different style. I don't need to think about this whole new structure. I already know what my Java structure is. And then I can easily reason about my HTML as well. And then about the CSS. Mm -hmm. And that's a wrap-up for this episode. If you're interested to be a guest in the show or you have topics you would like to learn more about related to enterprise application development, find us at 
padin.com/podcast. 